This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. I want you to meet someone. Well, I was born in 1949 in Silver City, Mississippi. And let me remind you, there is no silver and it ain't no city. When I started playing basketball, my first basketball was a basketball that didn't bounce. My mother made us a basketball out of cotton and old rags and everything and said, listen, we don't have enough money to get a real basketball. You put yourself a barrel rim up and we had already created a barrel rim hanging onto a backboard. And one beautiful thing about that barrel rim is that big so you don't miss. This kid from Silver City, Mississippi became a basketball player with size, athleticism and talent you couldn't help but notice. Talent that could serve as a passport to another life. All of a sudden, when it came time for the selection of the team, he called my name out. <sighs> Me? On the Olympic team? Okay, I'm gonna be an alternate. That's okay, I'm good. No, you're gonna be a starter, you idiot. <laughs> so I was like, I'm a starter? Talent that can make you rich and famous. I had 30 points per game. 19.5 rebound, rookie of the year, leading scorer, leading rebounder, MVP of the league, MVP of the All-Star game. Yeah, I'm the man. So give me a new contract. <laughs> so they said, oh yeah, sure, we got you covered. We're gonna take care of it. We said this would work. So they gave me a contract for $1.9 million. Obviously, this is not Lynn Bias. This is Spencer Haywood. Haywood never really knew Lynn Bias, not personally. But the two of them had things in common. Similar size, similar frame, similar talent. And another similarity. Everybody wanted to be in on the in thing. And Coke was the in thing. Spencer Haywood lost his NBA career to cocaine. From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. 
I'm your host, Jordan Ritter Khan. Haywood was born in 1949, Bias in 1963. Haywood entered the NBA in the 70s. This was the era that would lay the foundation for the league Bias was set to enter. And Haywood's America was fighting many of the battles around education, drugs, and race that would still be raging years later when Bias came along. Battles we're still fighting today. While their stories inform each other, Haywood and Bias led very different lives in very different times. Here's Haywood describing his childhood in Mississippi. I was born into indentured slavery because we could not leave the farm. You couldn't go to another farm and parse yourself out. You had to stay on that particular farm because that's the way it was. And if you attempt to leave, then they would kill your family. So it was just a... the way it was. And my earliest memory of being in the cotton field, because cotton was king, you planted it, you chopped it, which is rowing it and making it into a row, and then you pick cotton. And so we did those jobs from sunup to sundown. And I started in the fields at four. And uh, I, I remember earlier, I was riding on my mother's sack, cotton sack, and she was saying, Pick that cotton, baby. Pick it on the lower level, because my back is hurting. So uh, that was my first idea of picking. Growing up, Haywood occasionally found chances to learn to play basketball. It began with that homemade ball and the barrel rim. But at school, he got his hands on a regulation basketball and made his high school team. He had the size and the athleticism to compete with anyone. He remembers his coach talking to him before his first game. And he says, you're starting. I was like, oh, okay, I got to go to the bathroom. I gotta go. <laughs> I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm just going to die right here on the floor <laughs> in, in the locker room. So I go to the bathroom, come regroup. We get out there. I got the tip. And the guard kicked it back to me because I was so hyped. And I just dribbled real hard. I was like, ooh, I see that basket, baby. And ain't nobody's trailing me because I got this. And I laid that baby up. Woo, yes. The relief of like the joy of that basket. And then I see my sister sitting over there like, oh, he didn't do it. And everybody laughing in the gym. And I'm like, what did I do? Wrong basket, sir. Regardless, the talent was there. He just needed opportunity. But he knew that a lot of people with a lot of power would want him to stay right where he was, living and working on the plantation. As a small child, I mean, everyone else that I knew was part of the same system. And so we didn't take that much to it because, you know, we didn't have certain things. We didn't have clothing. We didn't have shoes. We didn't have a number of things. And the word would always be around, you know, people at the golf course would always talk about, if I would leave one of my niggas leave this plantation, I'm going to kill his family. And so you knew this. You knew that no one could leave. And then when people did leave, it was like a community event 
where, all right, baby, you're going to get you out of town now. But I'll tell you one thing what we have to do. We've got to get you to Belzoni, which is the next town over seven miles away. And that's where you would catch the bus. And you stay low profile until you get out of Mississippi. Eventually, that's what Haywood did. While still in high school, he went north with his older brother's help. He crashed with his brother in Chicago for a while until one day a high school basketball coach from Detroit saw him play and convinced him to move up there and stay with a host family. In Detroit, he kept playing, kept training, kept growing. But he wasn't thinking about the NBA. He wasn't even thinking about college. He just wanted to play basketball and go to high school without worrying about racist violence. I was thinking, man, I'm going to be in a school that I can go year-round? And I can play in a gym year-round? On the court, he dominated in Detroit just as he had in Mississippi. First game, I started off with 29 points, 21 boards. And I went back to school the next day. Everybody, oh, he's the man. Haywood's coach encouraged him to stay focused. Whatever you do, don't look at no girls. Don't get the big head. Because your name is in the paper, don't do nothing. All I want you to do is you're going to get into college. I'm like, into college? Yeah, you're going to be a college player. Here's what the next decade or so of Haywood's life looked like. He did, in fact, go to college, Trinidad State Junior College in Colorado. He dominated. While there, he got picked for the Olympic team. Remember, this was before the 1992 Dream Team, back when college players went to the Olympics. He went down to the 1968 games in Mexico City, and he starred for a team that won gold. Back then, you couldn't enter the NBA until you were four years removed from high school. But Haywood found another path. After just two years of college, he got drafted by the Denver Rockets of the fledgling ABA, and he played a season there. Then, after just one season in the ABA, he signed with the Seattle Supersonics of the NBA, even though he wasn't technically eligible. And in 1971, with the support of Sonic's owner, Sam Shulman, he sued the NBA for the right to join the league. The league says, oh, no, you can't sign him to a contract. We have a rule in the NBA. You have to wait four years after your high school class have graduated before you can play. That's a null and void contract. So Sam says, well, I got a legal team that says that you can't stop him from playing. The lawsuit was messy and drawn out. To dive into it, I recommend reading Gary Washburn and Mark Spears' book, The Spencer Haywood Rule. But here are the broad strokes. The case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. At 21 years old, Haywood was in Washington, having his case decided by members of this nation's highest judicial bench. And he won, paving the way for future college underclassmen to enter the league. He made it to the NBA, he played for the Sonics, and he was a star. After a few years in Seattle, Haywood became one of the league's first journeyman superstars. He went to the Knicks. In New York, he met a supermodel named Iman. They fell in love and got married. New York was also where Haywood tried cocaine for the first time in the late 70s. But it was just something he did casually at the occasional fashion party. After a few years with the Knicks and a quick stop with the New Orleans Jazz, Haywood ended up going, in 1979, to the Los Angeles Lakers. There, he teamed up with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Michael Cooper, Jamal Wilkes, 
and a rookie point guard named Magic Johnson. We travel out to L.A., and, you know, everybody's like, well, you know, you got Iman and Spencer. Man, they're just the perfect couple to be at all of the parties and everything. And I was like, yeah, I think I want to let my hair down. So I'm going to go and hang out. So one night I was at this big old Hollywood party and everybody, I'm looking around at everybody, I'm watching motion pictures and everything, and we're just kicking it. And you're a Laker, baby, you, you know, Laker, Laker, Laker. Then some of the great singers that I grew up, you know, like, my God, I was like, wow, this is the coolest party ever. Much cooler than the ones in New York because it was just fashion. And uh, the guys in the back keep running in and out different entertainers and different people coming out and coming out there, eyes all bugged out and shit. And I'm like, what's going on back there? So I wander back there and this guy says, tell you what now, you know, this year with the Lakers, you don't need to be snorting coke. You'll be out on the floor and your nose all running. This is the new thing here in the West Coast. So you cook it and all of the, the germs and all of the bad shit falls to the bottom of the glass and the raw coke flops to the top. Then you put it on this pipe and you take a puff. This is called freebasing, heating cocaine with a lighter and inhaling the vapor to generate a more immediate, more powerful high. So Haywood was there in that bathroom. And as he tells the story today, Haywood looks around with wide eyes and he says, Yeah, let me hit it. Let me take a hit. Holy shit. Man, my brain, my head, what's going on? Then I calm down and I'm like thinking, can't wait to have another one. One time I was gone. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, You're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Cocaine became the drug of choice for the rich and glamorous in the 1970s. But cocaine had been around in a number of forms for a long time. And to really get into that history, we need to turn to David Farber. He's a historian, the author of the book Crack, A History of Crack Cocaine. Really, to start, I mean, what is cocaine? So cocaine is derived from cocoa leaves. And cocoa leaves have been a traditional medicine, traditional source of energy, going back in the Andean countries. In the 16th century, the European colonizers arrived in South America, and they noticed that the locals were chewing these leaves that seemed to give them incredible amounts of energy. And so people were aware of it, but they didn't really understand it. And sure enough, a German scientist doing due diligence 
figured out that there was an alkaloid, a substance within the cocoa leaves that gave it its power, sort of like THC and cannabis. And these German scientists and then a bunch of other European scientists figured out how to take the alkaloid, the cocaine, out of the cocoa leaf. And then we're off to the races. And so, particularly in the 19th century, coca leaves were used, legally, as a supposedly safe super drug. Doctors, business people, they put cocaine in everything. And it was deployed in all sorts of stuff. Everything from wine, and that was probably the first commercial use, was a cocaine wine. There were absolutely no regulations or laws prescribing cocaine use. And it was just really kind of omnipresent. This is part of our country's capitalist DNA. The United States was a completely free market. And that meant freely selling any and all available drugs. There were little drops that were actually marketed to kids for two things. No, that's something they want. You know, little kids just stoned out of their minds. But also it was quickly becoming apparent that some percentage of people who started to use Coke, they became addicts or at least habituees. In the early 20th century, a few things changed. For one, the progressive movement gained traction, arguing that unbridled capitalism was less than ideal, that maybe, perhaps, something should be illegal to buy and sell. And second, the field of public health began to grow, and doctors made the case that this substance was dangerous. All the while, the temperance movement was pushing to outlaw all mind-altering substances, including alcohol. There was also racist panic around certain drugs. There was a perception that African-Americans were disproportionately using cocaine. So there probably was a kind of racialized component to concerns about the use of cocaine, too. So they all kind of combine and create this weird alliance that starts creating drug prohibition regarding cocaine. Congress passed the Harrison Act in 1914, which regulated the sale of cocaine and... As years passed, those restrictions only grew tighter and tighter until possession of the substance was criminalized. And after it was outlawed for a while, cocaine faded in prominence. But it didn't just disappear. It was still prevalent in Hollywood, for example. A lot of Hollywood studios had like their own in-house dealer who would make sure the stars got what they needed. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But amphetamines were legal at this point, so they became prominent. Heroin and marijuana were outlawed, but they were cheaper and easier to find than cocaine. And so for a few decades, Coke was nowhere near as big culturally as it was around the turn of the 20th century. Coke really doesn't start to come back in a big way till probably somewhere in the late 50s and early 60s. Then it really took off in the 70s. And it starts to find niche markets in the United States. Kind of demi moan folks, you know musicians, artists, and then some rich people who like that kind of high. It becomes like a rich person's party favor. And it becomes kind of cool and hip, and you're really with it if you're taking Coke. And you see this in, like, news magazine stories and, and everywhere. Coke suddenly is ubiquitous by the mid to late 70s. And there's even talk of legalizing it at that point. All of these dynamics also permeated the NBA. At the time when I went in our league, it was drug infested. This is John Lucas, 
the number one pick in the 1976 NBA draft, who coincidentally played at the University of Maryland. Like so many others in the league, Lucas's drug of choice was cocaine. One of the greatest lies told about cocaine was that it didn't have any side effects. And that, you know, another one of the lies, if you could afford it, it wasn't happening. Lucas hit rock bottom one night in March of 1986 when he was playing for the Houston Rockets, and he blacked out and missed a game. He'd already been suspended several times for not showing up to practices and games because he was high. And for the team, this was the last straw. They released him. Today, Lucas has been sober for more than 30 years. He's an assistant for the Rockets, and he runs his own addiction treatment program where he often works with athletes. One of the things that gets an athlete into trouble with addiction is the competitive nature of wanting to beat something. How in the world can a liquid or powder beat me? That's just a foreign concept to me. Lucas thinks elite athletes are wired in a way that can make it difficult for them to seek help when they develop addictions. The first step in Alcoholics Anonymous is to admit that you're powerless over your addiction. But when you've built your life on the belief that you can conquer anything, the word powerless may not be in your vocabulary. It's like fighting Mike Tyson. Now, if I get in the ring with Mike Tyson, I'm gonna get knocked out. You wanna beat Mike? Well, don't get in the ring. That's a foreign concept for athletes. Just to be clear, Lucas isn't saying athletes are more likely to develop addictions. There are a lot of factors. Genetics, for one. Trauma is often another. But Lucas is saying that once an athlete has developed an addiction, it can be particularly tough to admit they can't get sober on their own. In 1983, the NBA announced that it would ban any player who was convicted of using or distributing heroin or cocaine. Players would be responsible for their own recovery. When I first announced that I was having a drug issue, no, we had no policies, nothing in place. We had nothing for recovery. It was new. The commissioner at the time, Lawrence O'Brien, knew nothing to do with me. And so it took me six years after admitting to having a drug problem publicly to get sober. And then I was the guinea pig for my own recovery for the league, for the programs that we have in place today. After he checked into rehab and got sober in 1986, Lucas worked with the NBA to develop a more humane, more comprehensive policy to help players facing a similar challenge. Specifically, a system designed to help players find a path to recovery. It could be punitive, but you had chances to recover. So we had what was called the three-strike rule. The first time you went to treatment with pay, second time you went to treatment without pay, and if that was the third time, you were banned from the league for two years. All of this, though, came after Spencer Haywood retired. When Haywood was there in that bathroom at that Hollywood party in his first year as a Laker, freebasing cocaine, he had no idea what was coming. One hit, like the temptation song, one drag, that's all it took. Yeah, man, you're hooked. So I was gone. And then I just watched my game from that season go down, down, down. My marriage was like crumbling, but I, I, I couldn't walk away. It was like this thing was following me, you know? Everywhere I go. 
Haywood's numbers plummeted that season in Los Angeles. He'd built a Hall of Fame resume with the Sonics and Knicks, but now, on one of the best teams in the league, he was little more than a fringe contributor. He was only playing 20 minutes a game. He was averaging less than 10 points and five rebounds. At first, the public didn't know the reason for Haywood's struggles. And on the Lakers, the drop-off in his production barely mattered. They had Kareem, they had magic. So even though Haywood was spiraling out of control, they rolled through the playoffs. They beat Haywood's old team, the Sonics, in the Western Conference Finals. And as they got ready to face Philadelphia with a chance to win the title, that's when Haywood came fully undone. I'm like, it's clean because Norm, Kareem, and everybody like, you gotta, you can't be fucking around now. We got a championship here, Magic all in my, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, I got this. So <laughs> they left me alone and I'm driving on the highway. We had just beat Seattle. We're going into the finals. I'm, and I'm riding on the highway. These people, blah, 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 Lakers, go Lakers, go Lakers. And then somebody's like, blue, come on, come on, go with us. Uh, I shouldn't do this. That night, Haywood got high. He tried to get it together for practice the next day, but he was not okay. I'm thinking, oh, shit. So I get to practice, and so I go outside. I'm like, I'm going to run this shit out. So I get on the track. I'm running. Run, 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 run. So I go into the, to the meeting where we, we're having a, a stretching, which I brought to the team. We got to stretch. We got to meditate. We got to be in space and time and energy. So I'm like, sleeping and Jamal trying to wake me up and I'm like I'm thinking I'm dreaming I'm like I'm in my bed he's standing over me wake it up so I'm like oh okay okay so Westhead and Pat Riley and everybody was like oh man what's going on with Wood they know but you know yeah they knew Haywood was passed out on the practice court right underneath the basket while his teammates were preparing to play in the biggest games of their lives, he was still high from a binge, completely incoherent. The next night, Haywood was benched. And then I started getting mad about, well, wait a minute, y'all are trying to blackball me. The NBA is always wanted my head. So I was just a real bad addict. And then we get to the finals. I mean, we end the finals, the last three games. I was just in such bad shape. I couldn't, I couldn't travel with the team. And they left me at home, and then Kareem got hurt, and then Magic had to end up playing center. And then I was really hurting more because Kareem's was an accident, and here I am sitting there healthy, but high. Some of the other players, Kareem, Jim Jones, and other guys, man, come on, Wood, you ain't right. You ain't yourself. Maybe you've heard about the game in Magic Johnson's rookie year, where he, a point guard, started at center in the NBA Finals. It's one of the defining games of Magic's career. Well, this was one reason why. Kareem was hurt, and the Lakers' other star big man was high. The Lakers won the title, but Haywood didn't play again in the finals. He didn't play again in a Lakers uniform. Someone struggling with addiction back then didn't have many resources available to him. Haywood's biographer, Gary Washburn, explains. He was associated and given the label of being like an NBA druggie, and we don't want you around and get out of here, because the term addiction 
Like, if you grew up in those times, you were a druggie. It wasn't a disease. Like, alcoholism wasn't a disease and you were a drunk. Haywood spent the next season in the Italian League. He returned to the NBA a year later for the Washington Bullets and continued to struggle on and off the court, leaving him unsure where to turn. We didn't have no programs where you could go and you talk about going to see a psychiatrist. You got to be out of your fucking mind. <laughs> you fucking crazy? Explain that a little bit more. Why, why was that the case for you then? Because it was like, you know, you got to be crazy to go see a psychiatrist. You're fucking crazy. You a loony head. So <laughs> that was my understanding of it. Yeah. So I go to Italy and I play and then I come back. And I'm playing in Washington, and my wife is saying, Iman is saying, you still got to go see a psychiatrist. You know, you're not, you're not well. You need to talk this stuff out. You got, like, so much post-traumatic stress. Yeah. PTSD. I'm like, now, you know I don't have no venereal disease. Now, what, you, what are you talking about? Iman was talking about a childhood spent in fear of the powerful white men who could kill him with no consequence at all. She was talking about his court battle with the NBA, his struggle to earn a living doing the thing he loved. Haywood had suffered in his life. I'm the poster child. <laughs> Everything that happened, Mississippi, because, you know, I was shot at, I was kicked and did all that stuff. That stuff was like, whenever it started to come up, you were like, oh, I can have a hit. Let's go away. What happened to me? I mean, I had PTSD with that case. That case was like, yeah. It's like nothing you will ever want to experience in life. In the public, in an arena? Oh, my God, that's so horrible stuff. And they treated me so bad. But that was the art of war. I mean, so I, I found something. Because I didn't want to be like my brothers and sisters. They were drinking alcohol. I was like, I ain't be no freaking alcoholic like y'all. Look at y'all looking bad. And, you know, I'm going to do something real clever like coke. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but you know. But you can see the, the a certain twisted logic to it, I guess. Yes. Because you, you're in denial of who you are and what you're doing. So you you know, not like I'm not like my brothers and sisters. Yeah. Look at them. Give me another line, please. <laughs> Give me another tip on this fight. <laughs> Well, I sure didn't turn out like them. Yeah, I did, didn't I? Oh. So he went. Soon after retiring, he saw a therapist. Eventually, he made the decision to go to rehab and enter recovery. So I ended up going to see one, and I'm like, I'm just dumping it out for that whole week. And I'm like, you mean, I could have saved my life and my career if I had been here with you? Why didn't you tell me, (laughs) Doc? Yeah. So yeah. I started doing this and start doing it over and repetitive and, and my life just become this beautiful journey. And I'm like, why was I so mad about this? Why was I so mad about that? I dumped so much stuff yeah. and he brought so much peace to me and my wife brought so much peace to me. It was just like, wow. While we have no evidence that Lynn Bias was struggling with addiction like Spencer Haywood, and listening to Haywood tell his story, it's still hard not to think about Bias. 
Here is a man who, like Bias, was dynamic and devastatingly talented. And here is a man who, like Bias, was exposed to the temptations of Coke as his fame grew. But Spencer Haywood's story isn't a tragedy. Yes, his career was derailed, but still, it was a great career. And with some help, he was able to get his life back on track. One of his proudest moments came in 2015 when he was inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame. I get the call. I'm like sitting here with my young daughter, Isis, and he's like, it's your turn. And I was like, you ain't bullshitting me, John. Is this some kind of joke? Am I in? Yeah, you in. I set the phone down and I just cried like, like a baby. And I went into my bedroom and just folded up on the bed and so much like myself as a ball player playing on that bell rim. Everything in basketball, there was nothing outside of basketball, but all of the basketball stuff started spewing out from my gut, all the way out through my mind, to my head. And it was just like a beautiful journey. Haywood is talking to me from his home over Zoom, and he's beaming. He's 72 years old now. He and Amon got divorced. She later married David Bowie, but he got remarried many years ago. He has kids, grandkids. He has decades of sobriety. He has a full, rich life. And it's hard not to imagine what kind of life Bias could have had if he'd survived that night. It's hard not to picture him as an older man, decades after a long NBA career, maybe after his own induction into the Hall of Fame. Cocaine took a lot from Spencer Haywood, but it took Lynn Bias's life. Next on What If. I wake up and Dennis is watching cartoons. Then I wake up, he goes, hey man, Something happened to the guy you were sitting with at the draft yesterday. I said, what do you mean? He said, he said he died. I said, what are you talking about? He said, it's all over the news. So I changed the channel, and that's what I see. That's how I wake up. Dennis Rodman tells me. I said, you don't understand who this guy is, but this is the first-round draft pick of the world champion Boston Celtics, who's a superstar, and this is going to come out later to be an overdose death, and it's going to have international repercussions. What If, The Lynn Bias Story, is written and reported by me, Jordan Ritter-Khan. Story editing by Mallory Rubin. Our producers are Mallory Rubin, Noah Malale, Bobby Wagner, Hannah Beal, and Isaac Lee, with production assistance by Isaiah Blakely. Music and sound design by Isaac Lee. Copy editing was done by Craig Gaines and fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. David Shoemaker designed our logo. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.